0: Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Hazel Denhart about a new book she has coming out, Writing for the Soul of the World, an Author's Guide to the Universal Grammar of Story. How's it going today?
1: It's going very well. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me.
1: It's delightful to be here.
0: Also, tell me, Hazel, you are living in New Orleans right now. Are you from the city
1: originally? No, I'm from Portland, Oregon.
0: Okay. And uh, what brought you down here? Katrina. Oh, wow. Interesting. Could you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yes. Um, My husband was regional director for Gulf Coast Recovery for Mercy Corps, and he came down here to launch a big deconstruction initiative to try to reclaim as much building material as possible that had fallen so that residents of the city could use their own building material to rebuild their homes. And that would give them not only a much less expensive way to rebuild, but it would also let them continue continuity from their lives before.
0: Oh, that's super interesting, actually. And that's really like really focused on helping the community in an interesting way.
1: It was, it was wonderful. We really saw a huge impact with when people were able to recover their own building materials. The At, at the time the government was telling people that your home is not only trash, but it's dangerous trash. Mm-hmm and it has to be hauled away. And there was no notice. People would wake up one morning, go to visit their property, and their house would be gone. Yeah. And so this gave them value out of that pile of trash. It proved it wasn't trash, and it allowed them... Uh, some, some of them rebuilt their own homes with it, but other people gave it away, and it really helped in their psychological recovery. Instead yeah. of victims... They were empowerers, empowerers of their community.
0: Yeah, no, I can see that, especially in a situation like Hurricane Katrina and the floods. You know, you take the small victories when you can get them. Those small little moments, even if they're just being able to claim, reclaim something from from devastation. Right. No, I think that's great um, to kind of get into your to your own writing. Uh, okay. w- what brought you to the writing world?
1: Um, I, I've always. Been a fantasizer.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've
1: always, I've always loved to make up stories. Uh, they were a big part of my comfort as a, as a child. I had a turbulent childhood, and the stories I I made were kind of my own guides in how to get through difficult times. and And so it was a primal thing for me. It's just I think the archetype of who I am, also.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Um, I know you've written plays, you've written in various veins. Um, I know you also dealt with uh, learning disabilities, dyslexia. Right. Um, could you talk about kind of your, your your struggle with that and really kind of uh, surpassing and really realizing uh, how, how to, to deal with that, uh, just for, for our listeners?
1: I, I'm a very late bloomer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't come into my literacy until my late 20s. Um before that, I had just a marginal understanding of the printed world, but no grasp of literacy at all and one day, I came across an algebra book for ten cents at a garage sale, and it it didn't have any writing in it. it just had x plus one equals and then there was a column with the answers and you're supposed to guess what the answer was. And I guessed the first one and I was right. (laughs) And I went through that whole book and I got all of those problems right. And at that point, I knew that the education system had been wrong about me, that I was intelligent and I was worth educating. So I began an incredibly long journey to figure out how to learn and how to, uh, how to succeed, and once I cracked the code to the written word, which happened through audio recordings, and that's why I love this radio station. <laughs> this radio station is all about reading the printed word to people. I struggled for ten years to try to to get a bachelor's degree after attaining some basic literacy, and I, I couldn't make it. And then I got uh, a diagnosis, uh, or a label, I'd call it. It really shouldn't be a diagnosis. And then I got a label of dyslexia and was given my my all of my printed material in an audio format, and my mind just soared. I listened to audio texts day and night. I listened to them in my sleep. I had hoped somehow that it would just drip into me, like oxygen I was breathing, or an IV drip. Somehow, everything I had missed in life would come, and I just became... Incredibly obsessed with learning. And I didn't stop until the education system said, okay, now you're a doctor, so you have to, <laughs> there's no more, you have to leave. <laughs> so I went into research okay. in, in dyslexia.
0: Interesting. And uh, from that, you have this really interesting book coming out here, which in itself is a way of compartmentalizing and analyzing a large amount of things and trying to synthesize something interesting out of that um, into what you call the universal grammar of universal story. Universal
1: grammar of story. Uh,
0: what exactly, you, you use the term grammar. What, right. what, does that, what does that mean for you? And why, why did you come up with that term?
1: I call it a grammar because it's a, it's a system of I, I I hate to say the word rules, but yeah. it's a system of structures that are the basic elements of all stories in all places in all time. And we know pieces of this grammar. I call it a grammar because it's, it's dense, it's complicated. It's something that people continuously learn throughout their whole lives. And it's evolving. It, 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 it stays the same with basic structure, but it evolves a little as language evolves with each generation. Uh, a piece of this is Joseph Campbell's work in Monomyth. Mm-hmm. That's one piece. And he is saying that heroes go through a certain um, series of steps to, to reach a point of transformation. And I was very fascinated with that and wrote a master's thesis about about that. Um, And then as I began to put my own writing text together, I've been teaching writing since 1994, I I found many other elements that that go into it. And you can dial in the popular screenwriting guru, Sid Field. Mm -hmm. And what Sid Field discovered was, what he recognized was that there's this issue of timing in screenplays. But if you apply that timing to any story of any length in any genre, a novel, an epic poem, you know, Homer, the the latest comic, graphic novel, it's the same proportion of timing. Um, And so that's another piece of the grammar. What are those milestones of timing? Sid Field found three basic milestones of timing, but there are about six. And so in this book I bring up the... And other people have nothing new here that yeah. I've written. I'm, I'm bringing together great ideas that are out there and I'm, I'm weaving them in a, in a different way. But these are s- ideas that have sustained writers for forever. And I'm putting them just in a, in an accessible, almost encyclopedic uh, reference, an entertaining one, I hope. Yeah. So that uh, people can see, okay, what is my story lacking? If a writer suddenly hits a wall. There are n- numerous ways of diagnosing what is it that is, that you've hit the wall with, and you you can look at the grammar and find out. Oh, am I missing? Okay, here's an analogy. Am I missing a verb? Am I missing a noun? Is this a participle? What's a participle? <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I get that, and, and and just different ways of thinking through the different exercises they can go through. That's a lot of material you cover in the book. Uh, how did you end up deciding your internal structure for it? Because you kind of have an interesting way of like showcasing things. How did you kind of narrow things down from that enormous like fog and veins of all these different thinkers?
1: Right. Uh, well, I've been writing this book since I started teaching writing in 1994. This was my textbook. So it has just organically evolved over time. And my students have pulled out things that seem to be most relevant and most powerful for them. There is a lot more material to this than is in this book, and that's in the second book coming out, the workbook. Okay. And there are other there are a number of other smaller pieces that will come along to support it, to, sim- to simplify it and to make it more practical. So it really was driven by the writers that I teach who said, you know, I really need this, this really works for me. And then when I put it together, I, I being that I'm a late bloomer in literacy, I try not to, to write anything too, I try not to write anything too common, yeah. too much common language. So I wrote it as a dense academic text. And then I began hiring um, editors here and there to to give me feedback. And I had a marvelous editor, um, many years in the publish industry in New York, and he said you have to make this a memoir yeah he said your story is it's compelling and the way that you learned to read and write is what's happening with your students learning to write although it's more sophisticated in writing a novel than in learning to read a, a newspaper yeah but there are certain things that are common and so i i was embarrassed because i have what i consider a very shameful history that I was illiterate, and um, that I, I I didn't begin to function in society until late in life, and he said that's exactly what you have to write about, that and how you came to learn and and um, how that uh, is relevant to what what they're doing and now. Also, I wanted to write, yeah. and I didn't. I had several books and plays that I just kept hitting walls about, and so I would go into study all these different theories of writing to figure out, you know, how can I write a guidebook for myself? I'd read several guidebooks and they were helpful. I was so grateful for them. Yeah. I needed something more. Yeah. And so I wrote a guidebook for myself and my students said, this is, we want this. (laughs) So, And then as I um, neared the end of my teaching career, regular teaching career, they said you have to publish something because we need something when you're gone. Yeah, and so that's what this is.
0: I think that that's great, and I, I that's one of the things I was I was going to ask you about is that that personal nature you imbue a lot of yourself in there. I think that that's really an interesting thing that your editor told you to make add that memoirish element to it, because uh, I think it really things can get a bit technical when you're speaking about mm-hmm. like the mechanics of writing or theories behind it or, or any type of theories of myth and all those things that you've kind of incorporated into this book. And I think the memoir aspects really grounded, provide really interesting analogies for, for people that are coming into it.
1: Right. I, I was wanting, yes, to, to illuminate, to illustrate these ideas with something entertaining. Yeah. Um, the book basically says that there are three calls. There are three different impulses that every artist creative mind responds to in their work. One is a personal call, one is a social call, and one is a mythological call. And in the personal call, um, my memoir explains what were the forces that drew me to a story. With the personal call, we're struggling to respond to unfinished business in our own psychology, and our stories manifest from the same place that dreams manifest at night the unconscious is speaking to us through stories. And it's so painful to deal with some of these issues that it's really clouded in heavy symbolism that takes a long time for a writer to figure out what it is. In the first chapter of the book, I talk about that, that I was sitting on a stage doing an audience discussion after the opening of my first play, second my second play by Call, and it suddenly hit me that although the setting of the story had nothing to do with my experience in life i felt as if everyone in that audience knew my personal story and i was fighting to stay calm and <laughs> to not cry and no one knew my story yeah. but i suddenly saw the personal call revealed to me and, and you know what was happening the the social call is Um, comes from this greater society. And that is that we have a collective dream. Every generation has one major dominant struggle. And every creative artist contributes one piece of their work, one thread that illuminates that collective struggle. And the collective struggle we're dealing with right now is how do we unite, not just as a people, but how do families Unite? How do families stay together? How does a country, we can see our country is very divided, families are very divided. The world as a whole, the Western world as a whole, as it's moved around the globe, is feeling uh, disconnected. And the younger people, the millennial people and the people younger than them, are saying, okay, enough of this, you know, how do we get back together? And we see that in stories now. Stories and artwork point, point to that. um, For the personal call, there are many different reasons a writer writes, and it changes over their lifetime Mm because their problems change as they grow and evolve. The social call will stay the same through an entire generation. Then we have a mythological call, and that is this need to be together in a group of people and share a collective reverence, however you want to define that. But we know what it is when we feel it when we stand before something and we're all speechless and we all start to weep and we just feel outside of ourselves, we feel like we have connected in a way that we cannot explain and that we suddenly feel that the self-centered pursuits of life are so unimportant in this second. In this second, we want to hold on to this sense of reverence. Mm -hmm. And writers who provide that in a meaningful way are revering their audience. They are bringing reverence to the people that are watching it instead of the other way around. It's very rare to find a story like that. We know we've found it when it endures through time, Yeah. when it's not a quick pop culture, we feel good, uh, a cotton candy high Um but it becomes enduring so the personal call has to be dispensed with at some point in the book i show the le- the milestones where you have to let go of this struggle with your dad or your mom or your brother you have to let it go now because this is no longer a diary this yeah. is no longer a dream this is the story that the world needs and so when the writer lets go the story takes on a life of its own and it begins to enter the public and social sphere, that's where it has to pick up this so- social call. Mm-hmm. It has to begin to tell other people, not individuals, but a collective, how it can maintain its bond and be, how it can reclaim its tribe. And that will quite naturally, when people feel that, it is the audience that gives you the mythological blessing. You, as a writer draw upon the mythological impulse, but you can't bring that into your story. Your audience brings that into the story, and it does it when you as a writer are respectful of that audience, compassionate to that audience, and realize that you're not writing for you. You are writing because you have no choice. Destiny has pulled you into this, and and this has to be done. Yeah. It's a sacrifice.
0: Interesting. That's a really interesting way of kind of like framing a lot of these these ideas and associations and relationships uh, with writing and with the larger audience and the culture at large. Um, one of the things I appreciate about these these theories as ways of synthesizing this together is how you describe it as algebraic, as um, algorithmic in, in a lot of ways, as calculus, as something that's maneuvering, something that's tactile and is going to need to be continually moving forward uh, because it's never going to stay the same. It's going to be organic in a lot of ways from time to time, person to person, generation to generation. When you were kind of compiling this together and writing this, what were some strategies you kind of employed in the book to make sure that it would be relevant for people that were outside yourself and in a different time and place maybe?
1: I tested it. Yeah? I took this book... I took this theory abroad. I I taught it around the U.S. to a a wide variety of, of students. So I took it abroad. I took it to Germany. And I taught it at a film school there. And it was very readily received. They were quite excited about it. And when I left, they began teaching from the text that I left them. But their culture is not so very different from my own culture. And so then I, I needed to get outside of the Western world sphere. So I went to Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan and I taught it at the American University of Central Asia there to uh, a group of people who were raised in a communist ideology, a Marxist sphere. They're 90% Muslim. And they are, do not reflect my my lifestyle, and it 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 worked. It was exactly what they needed, and they um, they did a, a bit some staged readings of my work at a polytechnic institute there, and I and and I taught there as well. So then I went to the Middle East, and I, I went to Saudi Arabia, and uh, I taught it there, and it was again instantly, readily received. Now, it, this is a massive body of work. So the massive body is not instantly received. This, yeah. is, this is something that you, it's like getting a doctorate. It's something it takes your whole life to master. We never master English grammar or Russian grammar or Arabic. Nobody masters it, but you're always learning. But what you get are pieces that work. So take the pieces that work for you. So they took those pieces, but there were pieces there and they eventually began to pick up the wider work. Then I knew I had hit on a universal theme. I originally wanted to call it a calculus because it's about the study of change. It's the change of characters. And I think what is most universal with the Kyrgyz, the Saudis, and the Germans, and and the Asian students I also taught in the U.S. is that No writer gets out of a story unscathed. Hmm. A writer does not walk away any less transformed than their characters. It's like parenting. You don't get out of parenting unscathed. You are transformed by children. A story, if you are really telling a story, if you are wicking this story from the ether of creativity, you will be transformed by it. And that is because the personal call has dragged you in and said, we're going to deal with some unfinished business here. Mm. And you might not know that, you may never know that, but something will have happened to you. And writers who finish their pieces and publish, produce those pieces will tell you by and large, this is not what I thought at the outset. Yeah. I had an idea for a story and then something entirely different happened. And that's because you were transformed by, what? by the writing of that story.
0: Well, interesting. Um, there, there's more I could definitely talk to you about this, but uh, to kind of wrap us up, uh, when is the book going to be coming out and where can people find more information about it?
1: Okay, the, uh, the official release date is October 30th, 2018. And the book will be available at all the standard venues uh, for the electronic edition. I will be distributing it through New Orleans bookstores. The hard copy of it. It's also going to come out as an ebook. And you just Google "Writing for the Soul of the World: An Author's Guide to the Universal Grammar of Story." You can also Google Hazel Denhardt. I'm the only one on the web. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing.
0: <laughs> well, cool. Well, well Hazel, uh, finally to wrap us up, I'm wondering uh, what are what are some books you're reading right now?
1: I am. Heavily reading the books of Karen Armstrong, I'm particularly interested in her her book Holy War, Jerusalem, and the books that are helping us bridge the divide between the um, East and Western worlds. Yeah. Eastern Western worlds, they're just really fascinating books. So that's where I am with that. I read a lot of nonfiction, but I'm uh, I'm just beginning to get back into some classics, and my favorite of late is O. Henry.
0: Ah, uh, Not a bad one. <laughs> well, uh, Hazel, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It
1: was wonderful to be here. Thank you.
0: All right. And done.
1: And I didn't say was the reason I'm reading Karen Armstrong is um, I spent three years in the Arab Spring mm. in the Middle East, and I've written a book called Two Years Behind the Veil. For two years, I wore the full Islamic veil. Oh, wow. And I wore it everywhere. I even wore it back here to my daughter's law school graduation. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I did a study on it. And so the reason I'm reading Karen Armstrong is she's filling in gaps for me on that.
0: Knowledge and cultural interest. Okay. So I I didn't want to come
1: across as. some kind of religious something yeah, yeah, with yeah. that. So. I get that.
0: Okay, interesting. So, it's it's part of a, a research... Oh, interesting. That would be interesting to read. Right. You're talking about, I guess, your personal experience as well. Oh, go ahead. Is it
1: possible to record just a snippet of that? I mean, just to, to replace that with this? Just saying that the next book is... So, I'm reading... Yeah, Karen. Go ahead.
0: Just, also, yeah. and, uh, I'll do a question to lead into that. And also, are you working on any new projects?
1: Yes, I do have another book. I spent uh, three years in the Middle East, and for two of those years, I wore uh, the full Islamic veil during the Arab Spring and was in a few uprisings in the Middle East. The name of that book is called Two Years Behind the Veil, and I've been reading a lot of Karen Armstrong's work about the East-West divide and what's separating us to try to understand um, the, con- the gr- greater social context for this experiment that I conducted. I wore that veil um, to try to get a grasp of the lives of women who live behind it, what their experience is like. And so I committed to wearing it for two years, and I even wore it back home to my daughter's law school graduation. And I, um, as a researcher, I coded data and um, analyzed what happens to women that wear the veil. So Two Years Behind the Veil is my next book.
0: Oh, interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing that.